0: All right. well here we are, the last meeting of 2016 for this year's conference. On behalf of Joe and myself and our families, we would like to thank you. Joe gets to thank you again next year in the will of the Lord, but this is it for me. And um, I've really appreciated coming. It was around four or five years ago, Mike Atwood came back from this conference and he said, Steve, have you ever been to Yosemite? I said, not a chance. You got to go there. Probably won't happen, Mike. Well, it happened. So um, I'm very grateful for his encouragement and very grateful to learn much of you, to get to know you, to pray for you. And we're looking forward, perhaps, to how the Lord would allow us to work together in the future. Um, You've been a great blessing to my family. You've been very kind to us. And I speak on behalf of my family with tremendous thanksgiving. Thank you for all the meals. Thank you for just giving of yourselves, taking in 14 lost puppies, giving them food, water, drink. It's good. I mean, even last night, Ricky had them out till roughly 3 a.m. I couldn't find them. I had the park service looking, and they're safe now. So I might exaggerate. But I just want to say thank you. Let's thank the Lord together. Our Heavenly Father, as we come this hour, we would like to say thank you to you. Because truly these gifts that we, we uh, enjoy, this thing called fellowship, came at a great cost to you, O oh Father. And we just seem like we just reap the benefits of it, enjoy the blessings of fellowship. And we're not fellowshipping because we love nature, although we do. We fellowship we share in common because we share Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thank you, O oh Father, in Jesus name well we um we have some ground to cover oh and I one more last thing thank you, Joe, for ministering the Word of God. what a blessing it was to my heart. you know he said something about job I always struggle with job i i tend, I just don't handle st- difficulty well. You'd think I should, you know, heart attacks, strokes, big time stuff. You know, that's at work. At home, I'm a basket case, you see. But um, one of the things that I remember so clearly about Job is God never gave him an answer, right? This is how the conversation went down at the end. Put your man pants on and we'll talk now. <laughs> that's how it happened, right? And, and at the end, God never gave him an answer. He just said, I'm basically big enough, that's all you need to know, right? You know, when we have conflict in our lives, sometimes we begin to question about uh, we question God's abilities to manage contention and conflict. We begin to question why is this happening, or what, you know, why couldn't you've prevented this, and why do we have to have all this fussiness in our lives, in our relationships, and our marriages, in our assemblies it's not necessarily an answerable question. I would suggest to you, as our brother alluded to and spoke directly, that our God is big enough. His reputation is large enough, expansive enough, and complete enough that in spite of all that looks like it is painted as God's fault, it really is under God's control. And I think that's the beauty that the, the, the dovetail lesson that we must take forward in today 's conversation today 's conversation will be a slight review of conflict, a slight review of resolution, new discussion concerning um, uh, forgive our uh, brokenness or contrition, forgiveness is number four, and number five is restoration. so We have some ground to cover. you remember yesterday we talked about what is the source of our contention? As you know, in James, in James chapter 4, he identifies really our own personal lusts, the nature of driving, uh, of, uh, the nature that exploits our normal, natural passions of the soul, that sinful nature that exploits and expands them beyond a satisfactory uh, potential. God says that's causing the problem. And so yesterday, I spent a, a bit of time, and I'm sorry it was so hard because it's looking in the mirror. And when I look at the mirror, I'm not always thrilled about what I see. But we talked about the, the stubbornness that, can, that breeds strife and contention. We talked about pride, that, that shaking the fist, that, that raising up, thinking of myself more highly. We had a wonderful illustration in the person of Haman given by our brother Job yesterday. Oh, he's talking about me. No, he's not, you know. We talked about wrath, anger. You know, I want to suggest to you, that if you're are struggling with this idea of temper, you're really struggling on several levels. Number one, you're struggling against the sovereignty of God. Trust me, that's a key area. But number two, wrath and 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 anger—that that's all part of lack of self-control. And you're probably you're probably uncontrolled in a multiple areas of your life, including the lust of the flesh. They usually go hand in hand. I would suggest that we need to look at the mirror in total. We looked, at, of course at being contrary or, 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 or what I termed as fraudulent, hypocritical, that one dimension that sabotages your entire verbal testimony, the hypocrite. And believe me, there have been many a husband and father, many a wife and mother who have been just that, hypocrites. I want to challenge your children. Just because mom or dad may, may be less than genuine, It does not mean that you are off the hook to be genuine. You have equal responsibility in the whole equation. We talked about foolish, well, we didn't talk about, but we talked about, we should have mentioned foolish words. I sort of alluded to that in our previous day's discussion, how foolish words can cause such strife. The thing you shouldn't have said, and it came out anyway. Has that ever happened to anybody here? Oh, yeah. All the time. And then lastly, or excuse me, second to last, we talked about the scoffer. As you may know, the gift of criticism is not a spiritual gift. Right. It comes in a package that the enemy would like you to think is a spiritual gift to like you to use as a spiritual gift to like you to destroy the body of Christ like it's a spiritual gift. But it is nothing farther from the truth. It is a, it's a weapon in the enemy's hands, and many of us find that we can wield it well and call it discernment. I would suggest to you there is a distinct line between those two parameters. And the last thing I didn't mention yesterday was this area that causes such great strife is selfishness. Selfishness. Who, came, who, are, who are you staying with? Me, myself, and I. We're a good company together. Yes, you are. But I would suggest to you that my Savior lived this way, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but emptied himself. Selflessness. My personal feeling is the book of Philippians is a constant, repetitive theme of the selflessness of Jesus Christ, illustrated in Paul, illustrated in Epaphroditus, illustrated in Timothy, should be illustrated in Syntyche and Iodia, and definitely illustrated in the Lord Jesus Christ. Selflessness. It's the way of the cross. We ended yesterday by talking a little bit about how this must bring us to the understanding that if we have conflict, we really must resolve it. You cannot let it go. You can't just bury it. you cannot wish it wasn't exist. You cannot pretend it didn't happen. It did happen. And the only way the spirits of those around you, the heart and soul of those around you, will have closure, will have the ability to move forward is if you move forward to bring closure. That's the teaching both of Matthew 18 as well as Luke uh, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount with the Lord Jesus. We do not have an option. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. But all this leads us to the one concept which I'd like to focus today, and it's called contrition. For the next few moments, I want to talk about contrition. These are all steps in the restorative process of dealing with conflict. We identify its source. We recognize it needs to be dealt with, its resolution. And now we're going to talk about an attitude that is a a segue, a threshold for true restoration, and it's called contrition. Now, in order for us to get this well, I want to look at the words of the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 18. Please turn to Luke chapter 18. While you're turning there, I want you to know that one of the greatest poems ever written on the contrite heart is Psalm 51. Who knows how, why Psalm 51 was written? Anybody? Gary. That was a big one you know I was in med. I heard Joe talk about uh medical school interviews and notching it down. Do you remember your medical school interview? I remember mine. I had written down three three books i had, I'm not a big reader, right? I had to develop reading, and so I wrote the Bible right and my interviewer said, "I see here you've read the Bible yeah, who's your favorite character uh uh. of uh, uh. Well, outside of uh, uh, Jesus, I'd I'd, I'd say to King David. Well, what would you say about Bathsheba? You know Bathsheba? (laughs) That's what I want. It was a wild interview. I was surprised I got in, brother. (laughs) It was crazy. Where were we? Bathsheba, right. Psalm 51, one of the greatest poems. If you want to see what the heart of contrition truly looks like, it's David's words. Notice in that psalm right off the bat, what does he beg for? Mercy seed right? I pronounced it poorly, I'm sure. But that, that idea of this compassion of God that He obligates Himself fully and wholly, which which uh, holy as in the whole amount, he, he gives this obligation of compassion and tenderness, which presumes His resources to fix His problem. Tremendous statement. And then he says it this way I need your tender mercies against you and you only have I sinned. Actually, it was Bathsheba, it was Uriah, it was the nation, it was your family, and Absalom didn't really like it. You know, the whole, er, er, all the other kids were, were, were scarred too. It was a lot. No, it's against you and you only have I sinned. So many times when I hear someone confess something, we're confessing that we're sorry we got caught. We're sorry that we have consequences. We're sorry that that we have done things in a manner that has created problems. But we're not really repentant that we actually rebelled against a holy God. That's what's at stake. And when we miss that, repentance is fractured at best. All right, so contrition. Why did I turn to Luke? I want you to see this. This is very important. Luke chapter 18. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 9. Verse 9 says, And he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Notice the reason for this parable. Anything less than this disposition would bespeak of a self-trust. So here's the disposition. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and one a tax collector. Um, automatically we should know that there are the opposite ends of the cultural spectrum, right? You know what the Pharisees thought. This is what he said. They said, this rabbi of yours, Jesus, he's eating with the tax collectors. <laughs> right? That's the idea. They were despised. They were considered the lowlifes. They were considered, uh, many of them, like Matthew, considered, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, disloyal to the people of Israel since he was helping the nation of Rome collect taxes, you know, this kind of thing. So, both of them go up to the temple to pray. Now, the Pharisee, as you know, Paul defines the, some of the criteria of the Pharisee very nicely when he uh, lists his own uh, heritage, but really they, what is that, they memorized the Torah and they, they uh, were considered the religious and academic elite, that kind of Person. And so the Pharisee says, it says, he stood and prayed thus with himself. Interesting, the Lord Jesus said it that way. If you're a Pharisee listening to this, And the Pharisee went and spoke to the audience of one. That's what he's saying, right? And God, I thank you. Now, I really like to do this. Please forgive me. If you ever been toward, in Israel, and if, I don't know, have you ever been? Who's been to Israel? Have you ever been to the Temple Mount? Did you ever get on the Temple Mount? All right, I was up there once, and we actually made it into the Dome of the Rock. And um, I can just see, if I imagined it, this huge edifice and structure and gold. And it's, you know, like, what, two, three stories higher than where you're standing. It's gigantic. And I can just see this guy. He's standing thus to himself. He's going, I thank thee, O God. Praying to himself. Everybody's walking by going, right? Right? I thank thee, O God, that I am not like these other people. Can you hear him? I am not like the extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, or the tax collectors like the one to my right. I added that. It's not in the text. But can you see it? Can you just hear the arrogance of this? Now notice in comparison the, the, the tax collector. Verse 13, the tax collector stood afar off by himself, right? He would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, as if to say, I am unworthy to look you in the eye. I can't do that. My sin is too great. Now notice this. He says this, but he beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Now, I I use the definite article there, the, because my research would say that the definite article is there. Now, what does it mean when you use the definite article before the noun? It means this. You are identifying this particular sinner as unique, or this particular individual as unique, and perhaps with the only one in eyesight, meaning this. As far as I'm concerned, in the parable Jesus is speaking, the sinner is saying, the tax collector is saying, as far as I'm concerned, oh God, I'm the only sinner standing on this temple mount. Do you understand that? There is a lot of other people, the Pharisee, who were sinners that day. There's a lot of folks that could have traversed the Temple Mount. If you listen to the Lord Jesus teach this, you would have seen all kinds of humanity go moving back and forth. The beggars, the lepers, who are thought in the Jewish mindset to be judged by God because of their sin. And yet, in this teaching of our Savior, by the way, highlighting mercy, this individual is saying, I'm the only one here. I want you to know that I believe That is the hallmark of contrition. Now, when you get two people in a relationship and they begin to spar and you have words that go back and forth, do you ever have that happen? You know, you say one thing and they say the other and that kind of cuts, so you cut back and then cut, 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 and everybody's bleeding to death and the children, they don't get dinner, right? You know, when that starts to happen, there is so much sin in that volcano-like atmosphere That you do not have to blame each other at all. What needs to happen, and this is what I believe is important, is that each individual in the conflict needs to see their sin as the only sin that's standing on the Temple Mount. Do you understand what I mean metaphorically? That you see, now I'm not saying there isn't any other sin, I'm saying that your focus, your contrition, your accountability is the only thing that's in your eyesight. Anything less than that will always have an eye that squints open to look at the other person and say, and don't forget the Pharisee. I want you to know I've seen so many couples square off in front of me, fight like cats and dogs, and we get past all that stuff and we kind of sit and I say now what about your sin well i'm wrong but she is too let me tell you something you are wrong period you've got to come to the conclusion that your sin is enough has enough negative atrocity to it that it could easily cause the problem in and of itself Well, I only reacted to what my husband said. Your sin has got enough destruction in it to ruin the whole day. Yours. But what about, you don't worry about that other person. Because if you try to point out the sin of the other individual, then that other individual will act in conviction to your words. But ideally... You want that other individual to be convicted by God in heaven who knows everything you don't know. You really must see this. This is contrition. We have too many relationships, marriages, even parent-child assemblies where things have happened and gossip has is, is gone back and forth. And each one has injury and pain but you each have a measure of contribution to the whole problem. And I would suggest that a fundamental attitude at some point along the way will has, has to be this one. God be merciful to me, the sinner. You've got to cross that threshold. There is no hope otherwise. Now, having said that, I'd like to go on. Now... This whole idea of brokenness, it's it's a whole series. Josiah was broken. David was broken. You read these uh, the people of of, uh, Mount Carmel's day, or Elijah's day at Mount Carmel. They were broken. You see this brokenness. It's woven through the scriptures. You see that God says, I love to be with a broken heart of those who are contrite and tremble at my word. You know what that means? That means the Word of God has such a gravitating, such a solidifying effect that you know that His Word and you are in contrary, and I can't really stand here and I'm undone. That's what that means. You tremble at His Word. God loves for some reason, He loves to be with that person. It's a passion of his heart. I can't understand it. He is a, he's got the heavenly celestial bodies as living room furniture. And he would rather look for a dot on the globe of a footstool of, for his feet and say, that's where I'd rather be. With the broken and contrite heart. That's my home. Why is that? I would submit to you it's because ever since we voluntarily rebelled against God, we never voluntarily broke ever. And I think God longs for that. Oh, what a difference that would have made. May we be a people who are easily contrite. I was praying with some young people, a bunch of my young people. I say my young people because half of them are my family. But we, uh, they went to uh, the Galilee Project last year. We got home. And I said, uh, I said to them, Why don't we? Or they said to me, Let's pray about the things we've learned. And so we spent a month or two praying every week. It was it's, we still do it actually. And and uh, I was listening to my nephew pray. This is what he said. He's on his knees in my basement living room. And he goes, "Oh God, help me to be help me to break quickly." I thought, "Wow. <laughs> I want to be like that." You know, I don't want to go I don't, I don't want to go to the Brook of Jabuk 24 times before I actually break. I'm going to break the first time. That's a tender heart. That's the kind of heart God really seems to have a special place for. May we be that people. All right, now we need to move on. So we talked a little bit about uh, the, um, uh, the conflict or contention. We talked about the need for resolution. We talked about contrition. Now I want to talk about Forgiveness forgiveness see when we have this conflict that comes up we need to recognize it must be dealt with we must be broken both parties both parties must have this sense of contrition it has to be and now we come to the area that's really important and it's forgiveness now i I want you to turn to uh ephesians chapter one with me for a moment Sorry, my pages are kind of getting blown around here. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Notice, the forgiveness of sins was not a freebie. Why do I say that? Well, look at what it said the phrase before. Through His blood. Now, I know that some have said and sang... That is one drop of our Savior's blood would be enough to wash away my sin. Actually, I don't think that's accurate. The Lord Jesus couldn't have come to the earth and we prick his finger like we're doing a glucose test and we call it a day. I think what we're talking about is the shedding of blood means the loss of life. There has to be a death so that the guilty can go free. That's the story of substitution, right? Right. And so what I'm suggesting here is that our forgiveness is quite costly. Now, what does forgiveness mean? Forgiveness means, and this is what I believe is the most common word translated forgiveness in the, new, in the English, is "ephemi," uh, and it means to send away, to send away. It's uh, uh, one shade of meeting comes to us in a passage in uh, Luke where uh, the Lord Jesus is healing Peter's mother-in-law of her fever. I'm sure, brother, in, uh, in, your, in your practice with, uh, what is it, uh, a fever in the agran- agranulocytocin, you know, the patient with none of the neutrophils, neutrophilic patient, right? Uh, they get these fevers. And we would love to be able to go to the patient and do what the Lord Jesus did and say, fever, leave. Wouldn't that be something? We'd be, we'd be basically written up and we'd have to go t- talk to people about that, right? We'd sound stupid. But here the Lord Jesus he walks into his mother-in-law, or Peter's mother-in-law's room. The fever's there and he rebukes the fever and it says in the next ver- word it says and the fever left her. That word left is the same word as forgiveness which means to send away. And what is being stated so or what is being inferred by the imagery of this word is the idea is that our sin is sent away from the sinner. Therefore, the sinner can no longer be called a sinner because there's no more sin left there. His name changes, really, to be called justified. And hence, we have the book of Romans. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. Now let's let's go back to the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is in Leviticus chapter sixteen, which is actually one of my favorite books. And Leviticus sixteen is um, is this whole story about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so what happens was was uh, on that day, the high priest went in and out of the Holy of Holies multiple times, uh, uh, not only for purification but also for the people. And at the end of that chapter, there is this thing with these two goats. You remember this? It's all also reflective in the cleansing of the leper using the two birds. That's very interesting. Very um, similar-like parallel there. But here in the two goats, you've got one goat who gets sacrificed. Now, when I was in Kenya a couple years ago, they wanted to kill a goat for us. I've never seen a goat killed like this, so I was pretty excited. And so uh, I had my fancy Nikon camera, and I'm going (laughs) like that. But what I noticed... Was that the guy that did the sacrificing was bloodied from his fingertips to his armpits. The life of that animal covered him. You understand that, right? The perpetrator who was killing the animal was literally splattered with the life of that animal. Isn't that kind of vivid? And that this animal or this goat would have its sacrifice done and the blood would be taken into the Holy of Holy sprinkling seven times on and before the the Ark of the Covenant. And at that moment, he would say that this would be a place of atonement, I will atone for your sins. The cherubim standing right there just looking at, not looking at each other, but right there symbolically protecting the righteousness of God, as it were, right? And now, when a sinner comes into his presence with the blood of an animal, those guardians of the presence of God would stand down because of the sacrifice of another. That's what Jesus Christ has done. According to the book of Hebrews, he's taken his blood into the heavenly holy of holies, and that which which should judge us appropriately so stands down. And the one place that should be called the place of judgment is now called a place of mercy. And hence our Savior is labeled with this title, Mercy Seat. Don't you love that? I mean, it doesn't get any more picturesque than this. Okay, so you take the second goat, and this is what it says. You take your hands, and you, they confessed on that goat all the sins of Israel. And they took that goat, and they sent him away. It says, to a desolate place. This is the vivid imagery of what he means to forgive. God is coming along, and he's separating you from your sins, right? He's, the sacrifice, the payment, the, the cost has been done so that sins can be appropriately removed from the sinner, Sinner and the sinner no longer is labeled as a sinner. He's now labeled as a son. Now, here's the, here's the issue when it comes to marital relationships. There is sin that has occurred between two people. Maybe it was a word here, maybe it was a word there, an attitude, a flippancy, a disregard. Uh, uh, perhaps it was uh, treating someone with less respect, or you had expectations, which always ruins as a relationship. It's a selfish thing, expectations. You had all those things that were kind of uh, corroding the relationship, and, and you recognize that there was a difference between us. We need to make it right. You break over your sin. You come in, and, and, and now what has to happen? Is that you must take that individual, your partner, and you look at them and you must send their sin away. Right? That's what you got to do. They can't pay you enough for you to do that. It is a pure act of absolute grace on your part. That's how God is. The other word for forgiveness is this word that means grace. It's a gracious gift. That's what you have to do. You have to you, I, I envision you have to separate that person from the crimes and misdemeanors committed that violated you and did violence to your soul, and you separate them out. Why would you ever do that because that 's been how, that's how you 're forgiven. Do you remember the story Jesus told about when Peter asked how many times should I forgive my brother seventy times seven or what did he say what is it seven times seven and the Lord said actually about ten times that much and then he told this great story about the talents and one owed ten what is it, 10,000 talents. Now, if you take a talent to be 30 kilograms, which is what you usually find in in your Bible software, and if you take that to be 30 kilograms, and you take it to be gold, not silver, but we'll use gold as our our measurement, and if you take the price of gold as of three weeks ago, it is approximately $12.4 billion. All right, you understand? Now, do you know how much the 100 denarii that the, other, the, guy, the, two, old, the two people owed each other? The, the servant who owed the other servant? 40 bucks. You, all right? you understand what he's saying, right? You have so much debt with God in heaven. it's You don't have enough lifetimes to pay it back. So don't think you need more time and you'll fix it. There isn't enough time. The only way that forgiveness actually occurs is because the other person grants it to you. And you're going to have to grant it to that other person. You're going to have to live out the concepts of your salvation. That is the method of restoration. Forgiveness. Saints, we talk about it. We live it. We sing about it. But I'm telling you, we don't practice it. And that's a shame to us, isn't it? How much? How much? How many generations? How many decades of ill and bitterness have been propagated from one generation to the next because we haven't forgiven? I would suggest to you that that's a church, a people group that has a name that you're alive, but you're dead. You're dead because the things that God has given you, has forgiven you, of twelve point four billion are not living in the 40 bucks that somebody else owes you. And I suggest to you that we need to be the generation that stops this maddening, vicious cycle. And it can begin today in our relationships, whether it be in the assembly or or, or your roommates, but most importantly, in your marriages. Oh, I saw this one couple. They're fighting back and forth. And I'll never forget... Finally, at some point, one of the parties said, okay, okay, I will forgive you of that one thing. You think God's forgiven you of that one thing? What about the insurmountable beyond that? The 12.4 billion minus one. Doesn't work that way. I beg of you. Would we become a people today that not only know the concepts of what it means to be forgiven, and I've just touched a little bit, but will we be a people today that demonstrate it? Now, you're going to say to me, well, Steve, it says in Luke chapter 17 that if the brother comes and repents, then I should forgive him. I get that, and that is certainly true. But let me tell you what has happened long before they ever come to you. You've forgiven them in your soul. How do you know that? Because God in heaven has done everything possible, shed the blood of Christ, allowed it to be brought into the Holy of Holies and send, send, your sin to, send, send your sin away, but you receive it when you repent. And that's what's happening. You have prepared the ground. You've prepared everything that needs to be done so that when the relationship can be restored and there's that contrition from the other party, it now can be immediately put back together. Some will say in a bitter way, well, until they come and repent, I don't have to forgive them. No, 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 no. Then God and you would have a little bit of trouble, I would suggest. Because listen, he's done everything so that forgiveness can be granted instantaneously because it's been sent away in his mind. He wants you to receive it. That's how you have to do it. Okay, we have to move on because I am way, way out of time. So we have... Forgiveness, or a con- a contention, we have, um, I lost my way. We have contention, we have resolution, we have contrition, we have forgiveness. And what I'd like to talk about last is res- uh, restoration. I'd like you to turn with me to Second Corinthians chapter 6. Please, we'll be as quick as possible. Second Corinthians chapter 6. While you're turning there for your own personal study, I would like to suggest to you that Contrition does have a certain flavor to it. Psalm 51 is a great barometer of, of contrition. I would suggest to you that Second Corinthians chapter seven, roughly verses six through 11, describes a heart that is truly repentant. That's a barometer of repentance. Many ask me that. How do I know he or she is really repentant? Well, the scripture gives you some measurement thresholds. But when we get to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we find the context is this brother who in 1 Corinthians had been sinning, had been put out of the assembly, and now had repented, and now there was a moment where we need to bring him back in. And I'd want to finish with this last point, and let's begin reading in verse 6. The punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive And comfort, notice there is definite movement towards restoration. It says forgive, like we talked about, comfort, come alongside and bring them forward. Now, I want you to know that when you're in a marital relationship and you have to come alongside your spouse who has injured you, you know what you're going to be doing? You're going to be dying to yourself. And congratulations, you're in the company of the Lord Jesus. And sometimes it's going to be this thing, Lord, I emotionally do not want to forgive them. I emotionally do not want to be vulnerable again. I emotionally do not want to love them again and you're going to have to die to yourself and say these say this my father you would want me to do this and there's no way physically emotionally i can do that but through your spirit of the life of christ in me you could do that would you do that in me today i choose to die to myself we're stumbling right there aren't we we are So it says, come and uh, forgive and comfort, lest perhaps one be swallowed up in too much sorrow. Sometimes we like it when they're swallowed up in too much sorrow. We hold back on the restorative process to make them suffer more. Is that how Christ has treated you? Is that how God has treated you? Oh, no. He's welcomed you into the kingdom of the Son of His love. The dimension has changed for you and I. What right do we have to make the person suffer more for the crimes and misdemeanors, for the pain that I have received? You have no right at all. When he was reviled, he reviled not in return. He did not retaliate. Don't hold this so well. Don't have this passive-aggressive approach where we sort of dangle restoration in front of a person but never give it because it makes them hurt like I've been hurt. You know what we call that? Foolishness. Here it goes on. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm, ratify, validate. Legally is what the idea is there. Bring this back. Reaffirm your love to him. Validate your love to him. You know what happens when you do that? You have to die to yourself because you are going to expose yourself again. And I understand. I understand that's hard. Countless times you've been hurt, countless times, and now to go back and retrust someone—I know, I know—that's hard. And you know why you can do that is because you're trusting in the living God. You're not trusting in the other person, right? That's the. This is the way that we can see actual restoration brought to the body of Christ. It says this: For this end, also uh, I wrote you that you might. That, you might, that I might put you to the test. What's the test? The test is restoration. Whether you are obedient in all things. It was not only obedient to put the brother out, it's now obedient to bring the brother back. Now, whom you forgive, anything I also forgive, Paul is identifying with their whole dynamic, but notice verse 11, lest Satan should take advantage of us. How would he take advantage of us? Well, that goes back to the verse where it says that uh, they would have too much sorrow. In other words, Satan could move in and cause continued sorrow and therefore destruction of soul and a giving up of the whole process, both by you and by the one that needs restoration. We don't have a choice in this, do we? Why do we not have a choice? Because let me tell you something. I've been taken as an arch enemy of God to be a son that forever dines at the king's table. I am restored. And when I sin today and my fellowship is broken with my heavenly father, do you know what I find? I find that my father is like the father of that parable who is looking for his son. That son had a version of a mercy of his dad, which was unlike the real version of the merc- of uh, the real version of his father's mercy. And when he met his father, his father did not hold back, but embraced him and welcomed them back into the family business. My friends, why can't we do that? Why do we stop short? This is something that you will relive countless times in your marital legacy, but it must be lived. It cannot be ignored. You owed 12.4 billion. Your spouse, no matter how much you think they've wronged you, owes you 40 bucks in comparison. Are you or are you not going to restore? That's a hard one, I know. The hardest part of shepherding is to go take care of the sheep after they've bitten your hands, right? The hardest part of marriage is reinvesting yourself in each other when there's been such pain and and injury. My wife and I personally practice this. It's not because we're sort of weird, although we are. But when I go to her or she comes to me, we always say these words. I forgive you. I want to hear myself say it, and I want you to hear it and i want that to be the moment of time that we set up a verbal and tangible monument that we will know we will not go past this again i've released you i've sent it away oh can you imagine the people of god we could be if we would just live the doctrine we've been given let's pray my great, loving, heavenly Father. You are the God who forgives. Help us to be a people who learn to forgive, who learn to restore, who learn to love as you have loved. We need to take our theory and we need to make it so truthful in our own lives. Father, I pray this time we've had to share about what it means to be married. The principles of your word applied to marriage. Oh, I pray, let not a single one of us escape today without recognizing afresh how what we've been given must be applied to each other. I pray, Father, those marriages that are, that are just on the very brink of signature on the line of divorce would be halted by your Spirit. I pray lives would be broken and no longer would we see others as sinners on the Temple Mount. We would see ourselves. Oh, God, we are alive only in name. Would you change us? In Jesus' name, amen.